Thank you very much, Channing, for that very interesting presentation. I'd like to ask all of you just to hold your questions for now um, so that I can invite our next speaker to come up. Um, his name is Manish Fatna. Manish is the Executive Vice President and Managing Director of the World Resources Institute. In this role, Manish oversees WRI's programs, chairs WRI's management team, and works to strengthen the impact of WRI research in the areas of food, forests, water, climate, energy, and cities. Before joining WRI in 2007, Manish was Executive Director of the nonprofit Bank Information Center. He also served as a Senior Economist and Task Team Leader at the World Bank. Manish, thank you for joining us today. The floor is yours. Good morning, everyone. It's a real, uh, it's a real privilege uh, to be here with all of you today. So, Channing, that was terrific. It, it reminds me of a speech that was given 40 years ago, almost to this date, on renewable energy. Does anyone know who gave that speech? June 20th, 1979, within a mile of where we are today. Who said? Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter on the roof of the White House. First press conference on the roof. It was about the case for renewable energy. And he, they installed, some of you may recall, I, I, I don't, but some of you may recall a, kind of a solar thermal water heater. And he made the case that the US was going to have 20% renewables by the year 2000. The time was quite different, the economics, the costs of renewables were quite different. It was a time of oil scarcity. Um, it, it didn't quite work out that way, but, but I, I, I think Channing's kind of optimism today is much more well justified. And, and I think we are going to get to where he was saying. So look, I, I really liked Channing's paper. For those of you who haven't read it, you must read it. It is one of the best pieces I've read on energy in quite some time. It is insightful. He raises exactly the right issues. He uses uh, data analysis, the economics. I love the work kind of on South Africa about jobs, impacts on GDP. This is what we need to convince people about the importance of renewables. I did not know 3 million jobs in South Africa by 2050. That's a big number. That's what politicians care about. It's also an accessible piece. So I'm not really a, an energy expert. Um, but I found that I found it to be quite, quite an easy read. So I encourage all of you to read it. What, what I want to do today is just talk. Um, kind of build from that paper. And when we think about energy systems, we, we, we look at them at least kind of in three broad dimensions that we see energy systems need to be able to achieve, right? You want energy systems that are cost effective and reliable, so you got to think about the economics and reliability, one big piece of it. You want energy systems that also, for many of us here today, that are about providing access to those who don't have energy, right? So there's a poverty dimension. And then, as I suspect many of you, care also about the climate challenge. So we need energy systems that are low, if not zero carbon. So those three dimensions or attributes as we think about energy choices, sources for the future, are what we want to reflect on. So what I want to do is just take a couple of minutes on each of those three dimensions and just share a couple of, a couple of reflections on, on what we see happening um, in the energy system. And I want to start with this issue of the costs. Because I think to some extent, there still remains in many places around the world, even though Channing is absolutely right about the costs, you go and you talk to finance ministers, you talk to planning ministers all around the world, they don't get it, right? They don't, they don't believe it, right? Part of the reason 
is the intermittency challenge. And Channing spoke about a number of different ways in which we're starting to look at how you can tackle the variability question. But one of the reasons, oh gosh, you guys are very high tech here. So um, hold on, Hi, there's a, there we go. So, so, so this is renewables, this is the same, Lazar oh no, this is Bloomberg New Energy Finance. But here you have renewables, here you have kind of your fossil fuels. But here, if you take renewables with storage, right, to make them a little bit more comparable to fossil fuels in the sense they're more easily dispatchable, they become considerably more expensive. Right, so as, as you think about, you can't, you gotta do apples to apples comparisons. You gotta think about what the premium is uh, that you need to put in place to deal with the intermittency issue. Now the issue of storage is coming down quite quickly, but nonetheless, it is, it is a real issue and we need to acknowledge that and find ways in which to bring that cost down. But the, the, other, the other kind of on a more positive side, we've been doing work a lot in Indonesia. We've been working with, um, very closely with Bapinas, their planning ministry as well as their finance ministry, exactly on this question as to why do they feel they need to continue to invest in coal and fossils. So we spent the last year doing quite a bit of modeling work with them, both on the cost of energy and on the impacts of clean energy on GDP and growth. The exact same analysis that Channing showed for South Africa with the economic impacts we've been doing with Indonesia. One of the interesting things we noticed in this study is that we're, again, give me one, so, oh. <laughs> so, Indonesia, right now, this is wind in Indonesia, right? Nine, nine and a half cents, solar is nine cents. So they're looking at those prices if you're the finance or planning minister. And they're going, coming here in coal, and they're seeing coal at five, five, six cents, right? Coal and gas. And they're like, why would we go to renewables, right? Um, so part of the reason is that their actual costs for wind and solar are quite a bit higher than the international benchmarks. Why is that? What, what is causing that huge cost differential? Are there economies of scale that can be created by actually investing more significantly? Indonesia, like South Africa, probably has very good potential relative to Germany, so that's not the issue. And then if you look at coal and gas, what we did is we actually started to put in place some of the externalities. Air pollution is a real problem. So look, this is the cost of air pollution. And if you take any type of carbon price, right, you begin to change the economics quite quickly. And so we went through this very detailed analysis of trying to get a more fair apples-to-apples -apples comparison of where solar and wind could be with a little bit of efficiency, a little bit of learning, and what the true costs of fossils are to actually create a more level playing field and thinking through that. It really did kind of shake up a little bit the thinking, and we see now quite a bit more interest now in actually moving towards renewables, but how you do that is still a, still a challenge. Um, let me, let me turn to access. Uh, so the access question, still a huge challenge. 840 million people still don't have access to electricity in the world. 87% of those are in rural areas. 95% are in sub-Saharan Africa or in developing countries in Asia. A lot of literature that access to modern energy has huge socioeconomic benefits, whether it's health, education, productive uses for agriculture. Um, one of the things we've done, actually, is we've, we've, one of the challenges in the access conversation is quite, quite tragically, we still don't mobilize enough resources to deal with the access challenge fully, despite goal, you know, goal commitment after commitment to eradicate energy poverty in the world by X year. So we have to really think about how we mobilize resources, but how we focus those resources 
the most effective way possible. So one of the pro one of the kind of projects we have at the World Resources Institute is to try to help countries, policymakers, think about where they should focus their efforts to invest on energy access by understanding where the demand for energy is most significant. So we've developed this tool called the Energy Access Explorer that looks both at the demand side of energy access, looking at demographics, looking at social and productive uses where the demand is, as well as the supply side, the resource availability and the infrastructure. And when you overlay both of those, you can begin to optimize or focus on where you think um, you should focus your resources. One of the interesting things we've done on that is actually, if you look, we've actually imported a lot of IFPRI databases on irrigation, on food, and so forth. And this actually shows the electricity needs for groundwater irrigation in Uganda. So you can begin to think about where those needs are greatest. You could overlay that with poverty. You could overlay that with resource availability as a way to help inform kind of the Ministry of Energy, the Ministry of Agriculture, rural energy agencies in Uganda in terms of where to focus their efforts. So just a couple of reflections on access. So that takes me to the third issue, which is the mitigation challenge, right? And I, you know, we use numbers all the time, and at some point we all kind of glaze over. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a paper experiment with all of you. So if we assume this is the number of global, kind of global CO2 emissions in 2019, it's about 37 gigatons, right? Business as usual has us at 2030 at 50 gigatons, so this much. We actually, if we want to get 66 or actually 50% chance, one and a half degree, basic assumptions pretty much consistent with international commitments. By 2030, we actually have to have about 20 gigatons. In 2040, we got to get half more, cut it to 10 gigatons. And by 2050, again, cut it by half to five gigatons. It just gives you the scale, the pace of the challenge that is before us, right? And we know that even though emissions plateaued between 2014 to 2017, last year, as you may recall, 2018, emissions went up 2.7%, CO2 global emissions. So still a lot of work to be done. One of the things that I just wanted to kind of talk briefly about on this is, you know, we spoke a lot about decarbonizing the power sector. That is an important piece of the puzzle, but it's not the entire puzzle. Power is about 20% of global energy, final energy consumption, about 38% of CO2 emissions from the energy sector. So not only, so if you think about the strategies we need to deploy to actually decarbonize the energy sector rather than just the power sector, you gotta do three things. You gotta kind of focus effectively on energy efficiency. You have to actually build out renewables, not only in your power sector, but think about renewables for buildings or for, or for uh, industry or for transport. Think of biomass for heating and buildings as an example. Or, and you need to electrify all the end uses. You gotta electrify transport, you gotta electrify industry, you gotta electrify buildings. So those things kind of collectively give a little bit of a more full picture of what it will take to decarbonize the energy sector. So um, with that, um, I still remain hugely optimistic about where we are, and I think Channing's paper does, um, and with his co-authors, a great job in giving us the kind of the, the, the data, the analysis, the case studies, but in particular some of the economic analysis that we're going to need to accelerate this transition. So it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Very much looking forward to the discussion. Thank you.